Open up your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we look at this text at this time. Father, help us. Help us to know you through your word. Thank you for the journey we've had thus far in, in this wonderful book of Acts. As we've seen the gospel bear fruit all around the world. Thank you, God, for the power of the gospel. As we just sang, Lord, we know the power of the gospel shall prevail. No matter how much the world fights and culture fights against you, the gospel wins. You win. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us be faithful in dark times, times where even so-called Christians are running from your word and from your principles. Help us to live rightly. Help us to live for your glory. And now, Lord, do your work in us. Sanctify your people through your word. Do your work as you've planned since before time began to sanctify those who are yours. And for those who are not, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. May they repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Help us now, O God, in your name. Amen. Last week, we concluded Acts chapter 19. We saw that a riot broke out in Ephesus. Paul and his team are in Ephesus, and Paul begins preaching against idols and idolatry. And this upsets the idol makers because as more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins and turning from idols, those who are making idols for profit and for a living have a lot less income. And whenever you mess with someone's wallet, they're going to get mad. We know that. And a riot breaks out, but God protects Paul and his team, and allows Paul to leave. We saw that last week. We go to Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, there's so much that happens. I mean, Paul is here, there, and everywhere. There's a lot that happens in this. Some of these verses is like a travel log that Luke is recording of who goes with Paul and the places they went. For example, the first six verses of chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, that's the riot, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Again, we see this repeated throughout Paul's life. Paul goes into places where the gospel has not been proclaimed. He preaches Christ, people believe, churches are planted, persecution arises, and Paul just leaves and goes to the next place and does the same thing. Paul is under constant duress and constant persecution. We've seen this now over almost a year and a half going through this book. Verses 4 through 6 say some of the people that went with Paul, some of the people that we are very familiar with, and 
some that we're not so familiar with. We get to verse 6, and Luke tells us that they sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and, and they came to the city of Troas, where Luke then decides to give us some more detail about what happens in Troas. And there they only stay seven days. Let's look at verse 7 and see what happens in Troas that Luke wants us to know about. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Here we see actually the first mention specifically of the local church gathering on the first day of the week. We know that they've been meeting on the first day of the week, but specifically it's mentioned here in chapter 20. Why does the church meet on the first day of the week? And by the way, that's Sunday. And in our modern culture, Sunday is the week end, right? It's the end of the week, at least the way we think of our work schedules. Monday to Friday, Saturday is the beginning of the weekend, but actually, it's the end of the week, and Sunday is the first day. The early church met on the first day, Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They did this to recognize the empty tomb. They no longer were worshiping on the Sabbath as God had commanded the Jews in the Old Testament. They are now representing and and. And celebrating something new, the new covenant, a new creation. The focus shifts from Sabbath rest to Jesus' arrest. Jesus is our celebration. Jesus is the new day we've expected, and he's here. Also remember that the Jewish day did not begin at sunrise like we think of it. The Jewish day began at sunset. So really, Sunday, or the first day of the week, began for us Saturday evening at sunset. That's the beginning of Sunday. And what I think we see here is when we think of the first day of the week, we're thinking, okay, after midnight, Sunday morning. But no, this is probably Sunday, Saturday evening in the evening, because it says here that Paul is going on until midnight. The old covenant's been fulfilled. The new covenant is here. This is why Christians meet on the Lord's day. And this is not negotiable. If you are a Christian, you must gather with God's people. Being in church assembled is required. Not for your salvation, of course. No one goes to heaven because they attend a church service. But we gather because we belong to him. You cannot, and I've said this before, you cannot do church online. Church online is an alternative when you can't be there because you're sick or you're away on vacation or whatever the situation is. It's, it was an alternative for a season, not our replacement for regular meeting. The word church implies a gathering. These People who say they belong to Jesus Christ, who are now one in him, who have the Holy Spirit, who have become born again, meet on the Lord's day to worship. And that's what we all have done here this morning. This is why we meet on Sunday. 
Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so what else do they do when they gather? They gathered on the first day of the week. And Luke says here they met to break bread. The breaking of bread is symbolic or wording for the Lord's Supper. This is an obedience to what Jesus instructed them to do. Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed, Remember me and do this in remembrance of me. We break the bread to remember his broken body. We drink the cup to remember his blood so that we will never forget the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, you find more evidence in the New Testament of the early church doing it more often than not doing it. Sometimes they would not only do it on the Lord's day, they would do it day by day, house by house as they gathered for worship. I think a lot of modern Christians worry if they're going to do it too often. The problem in the New Testament was not whether we're going to do it too often, but whether we were going to do it often enough. And here at Northwest, we do it once a month, and perhaps we need to do it more often than that. But when they came together to do the Lord's Supper, they also had a, what they called an agape feast, a love feast. It was also a common meal. See, Baptists aren't the first ones that created potlucks. Even the first Christians had uh, a meal together. And that's something we do really well. Amen? Right. So they had, when, when they gathered together on the Lord's Day, they, of course, broke bread. They observed the Lord's Supper. They also had this agape feast, this sharing meal, this common meal. And normally the more wealthier believers in that congregation would would supply the meal for the, for the poor believers in there, and everyone came to the same table, showing that we are equal in Jesus Christ. Whether you're rich or poor, right? Whether you're slave or free, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, Everyone comes to the same table. We remember the same Lord. We have the same baptism. We're sharing the same meal together on the Lord's day. That's church, friends. That's church. That's what a church does. Of course, the Corinthians abused this agape feast, and Paul had to tell them in 1 Corinthians that they were abusing that and making a mockery of what the Lord intended but we'll save that for another series. All right. What else happened on the Lord's Day when they gathered? They met on the Lord's Day to break bread. That's the Lord's Supper. They also met for preaching and teaching of God's Word. They would hear God's Word taught and preached, and Jesus was magnified, and the law of God was expounded, and the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what we do every Sunday here at Northwest Baptist Church. We open up God's Word. Already today, we've had two occasions where God's Word has been read corporately. And now we exposit the Scriptures verse by verse, phrase by phrase, knowing what God wants us to know about. This is His Word, not ours. Amen? He is the authority. His Word is inerrant and sufficient and authoritative. And it's the central focus of our worship. He gets the first word and the last word. I've been your pastor for nine years and two months almost. And over that time, you've heard me preach 444 sermons. That's today, 444. 
interesting number. I, I'm a baseball nerd. I love statistics. I'm always keeping stats and stuff like that. But anyway, that's okay. 444 sermons today that you're hearing if, you're, if you've never missed a Sunday. There you go. Anyway, so they gathered on the Lord's Day to break bread, worship together, and Paul talked with them. And he's sharing the scriptures, I'm sure. He's giving instructions for when he leaves because he was only going to be with them for this night. He was leaving the next day and probably would not return. Paul is already thinking, this is the end of my ministry. This is the end of my life. It's coming to a close. And so, since he has much to say, he preaches until midnight. And you thought I preached long. You think I speak a lot. No more complaining from you. All right? He goes on until midnight. So look at verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room. Okay, that gives us another perspective on where they're meeting. They're meeting in an upper room in a, uh, of a house, which, is usually, which was very common back in that day, a, a gathering area, a common area for for greeting people and eating meals together. We saw the early church in, in, in Acts chapter 1. They met in the upper room as well on the day of Pentecost. There were many lamps in the room when we were gathered. And notice Luke kept saying we, we, because he's there. He's not always been there every step of the way with Paul, but when he says we, you know, okay, Luke is there too. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. I mean, I've heard knock him dead before, but Paul literally did. This guy sitting in the window, probably not a great place to stay was falling off into the land of Nod. You know, you're trying to fight. He's fighting it, and he's trying hard not to fall asleep. He's in the window, and there's many lamps in the room. Maybe just the cozy environment, the right lighting, the, the, the orange flame, the ambience. Ambience is great. He's tired. They've already eaten them. You know, all this stuff is going on. Paul keeps going, and he falls asleep. Falls asleep and falls out the window three stories to his death. Wow. I told you not to fall asleep in church. Now, who's sleeping at this moment? Hmm, okay. What do you do when someone dies in the middle of your sermon? <laughs> well, it's probably best practice to go and check on them, right? Look at verse 10. When Paul went down and bent over him, he took him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now, some people say that Eutychus did not die, but I don't see how that could be possible. Something happens here. He fell down dead, taken up as dead. And this is nothing short of miraculous. When Paul carries him in his arms, life comes back into this man. And Paul assures everyone that he is now alive. I'm sure we talked about this purpose of miracles and signs. What is the purpose of this? To show the church at Troas that God, that God is speaking truth through Paul. Listen to Paul. And this is the purpose of all miracles as we see throughout the New Testament. 
So what do you do at midnight after a long sermon and a boy falls three stories to his death and comes back to life? Well, you go up and eat. Look at verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while. Paul is not done. Until daybreak, he keeps going. And I'm sure no one else sat in the window from that point forward. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So they go back up and share that common meal. And they talk until morning. They talked all night long. Why? Because Paul loves these people. One of the things we see in Acts chapter 20 is the pastoral heart of Paul. We see his love for God's people. He cares for their salvation. He cares for their sanctification. He knows he's not going to come back, and he wants to leave them as healthy as possible. He wants to make sure that they are grounded and rooted in the truth, that he talks all night long. Paul did not have a ministry mentality that he checked in and he checked out. I've done my time. I'm going home. No. He poured his heart and his soul and tears over these precious people. The boy's alive and people were very relieved and comforted. Verses 13 through 16 is another travel log by Luke. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, attending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Asos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after, we went to Miletus. And for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he may not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. More travel log, more itinerary stuff from Luke. Luke is a, our historian. He's the doctor. He cares about details we could see throughout this book. And now we get more focus of what happens from Miletus. And he sends to Ephesus. And he calls for the Ephesian elders to come with him. See, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's going there to bring an offering that he's collected for the poor saints of Jerusalem, for the poor believers there who were going through famine and going through persecution. He had collected an offering all throughout that area to bring it back to them. Why? Because we see that Paul has a pastor's heart, compassionate, kind, loving, sacrificial and now we can see this. He's like giving final addresses. Paul is knowing my time is nearing an end. They're soon going to kill me. I, I may not live much longer. So let me keep pouring into people as much as I possibly can. Look at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus... And called the elders of the church to come to him. Ephesus was a place that he had spent three years previously. We saw this in chapter 19. He was there until a riot broke out because he upset the apple cart with the idol makers. His, Paul's preaching was disruptive and, and he was hated there as much as he was everywhere else. But who does he call for? 
to gather. In Troas, he speaks to the church. Here in Ephesus, he calls for the elders to come. Now, who are the elders? What are elders? We've talked about that already in the book of Acts. He's calling the elders. The elders is the biblical word for what we commonly refer to as pastors. But elders is really the more biblical, correct word to use. The biblical word is elder. We talked about what elders are earlier. Elders are biblically qualified men. Can I say that again louder for the Southern Baptists in the back? Elders are biblically qualified men who shepherd God's people. And God lays out these qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. It's one of the most disheartening things of the Southern Baptist Convention last week. There was a debate on the floor for 45 minutes because they wanted to study, form a study committee to define what a pastor is, whether or not they should disfellowship churches with women pastors. Incredible. Elders are those whom God has called to take care of his people. And there are important things to consider here. Because elders are not CEOs. Most modern pastors today are no different than a CEO of a corporation, and it's sad. They're just there to be the face or personality of the church He may be charismatic, he may be gifted in some other areas of leadership or speaking ability, but that's where it lies, it it rests, it rests with the business capabilities of the pastor to grow the church to numbers so they could build bigger buildings. That is not what a biblical pastor is. An elder is not a professional. And John Piper wrote a good book a few years ago called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. We're not sending out professional men who could lead corporations. We are raising and training up shepherds. That's what a pastor is. The Spanish word for shepherd is pastor. We use pastor. Shepherd and pastor are the same word. Elders must be those who are able to preach and teach. The other thing about elders that you see in the Bible is that there's never just one of a given church. There's always a plurality of elders. Every time you see the word mentioned, Paul gathered the elders, and the elders came together, and the elders, it's always plural. Because God has not gifted one man to run the church. That is not biblical. But God has given the authority And designation to a group of men who are qualified in that way in order to do that. Here at Northwest, we don't have an elder system yet, and I hope that changes soon. If we did in the moment, Fred Loskamp would be another elder as he is biblically qualified. It's something we need to pray for and change and see how we could do things more biblically in the future. In the meantime, we have deacons who serve in the place of elders, but we need to get back to where deacons can be deacons and elders can be elders. That is the biblical model. So what's Paul saying to the elders in Ephesus? Well, he is again sharing his pastoral heart. Paul loves the church. He loves the church. And he lays out his example 
to them. Because he knows that these men are the ones who are going to further the work in Ephesus. And there's already some criminal people coming in. Some wolves that are creeping into Ephesus. Who are trying to usurp God's word as authoritative. Bringing in all sorts of false doctrine. And he wants to make sure that these elders of the Ephesian church know how to shepherd God's people. Look what he says in verse 18. When the elders come to him, he says to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Again, he's setting up the tough call of pastoral ministry for them. If you guys are going to be elders, you got to know one thing. It ain't going to be easy. This is no picnic. You guys are either in or you're out. And let me remind you what I endured and what I had to go through and what the Lord did through me. How did I serve the Lord? With all humility. Why? Because God humbled me. And we know Paul in previous and other passages says that he deals with pride and he has to be humbled. And the Lord humbles him, we know, at one time with a thorn in the flesh, which we won't talk about now. And he asks the Lord three times to take it away and he doesn't. He serves the Lord with all, humanistry, all humility. Ministry is indeed humbling. It isn't designed to make one proud or prideful. It isn't something so you could pad your resume, so you can go on to the next bigger church. And this is what people do all the time. They go from church to church to church so they could pad their resume. No, God has called shepherds to care for God's people. And if he wills to be at one place forever. This is what I loved about the example of John MacArthur. Last week we went to Grace Community Church with our team and we sat underneath the preaching of John MacArthur. John MacArthur has been the pastor at Grace Community for 53 years. What an example. What a godly example he is to pastors. But ministry is meant to humble you. It will not make you proud or prideful, although it does for some. And if so, those persons are disqualified. A prideful pastor will be destroyed by his own sin, I guarantee you. Guarantee you. There are people who serve God, whose desire in pastoring is to further themselves. But be warned, God will not be mocked. Paul also says he served not only with humility, he was humbled. But he served with tears. He says in verse 19. Tears. Ministry is difficult. Paul says that he cried much over Ephesus. He cried over the people there. The pain, the headaches, the heartbreaks. People are people and they will let you down. One thing I've learned quickly in being a pastor... And this month is 23 years that I've been in ministry by God's grace is that sheep bite. That is true. Sometimes sheep kick as well. There are many tears over people. And Paul faced this 
with these people. And also, of course, from the persecution. That's what he says lastly. With trials, people tried to trap me, imprison me, falsely accuse me. And he says specifically that all this happened through the plot of the Jews. So, hey, elders, I've gathered you together. You've got a lot of work to do. You're going to do it? You expect to be humbled. Expect to serve through many, many tears. And don't think it's going to be easy moving forward. There is intense trials that are coming through the plots of the Jews, through the plots of the evil one, the wicked one, who does not want the gospel to bear fruit in Ephesus, who wants you to cater to the culture and compromise. Keep faithful. Expect hard times. If not, get out. If you can't take it, get out, quit now. And there are a lot of people that need to quit right now, I'm sure. The Lord keeps Paul humble. Why? Because the work is never done. The work of ministry is never accomplished in this life. There's always one more person to reach. There's always one more person to disciple. There's always one more person to help with another troubling situation. Being a shepherd is a messy job, literally. Taking care of sheep is not for the faint-hearted. He says, okay, elders in Ephesus, are you ready? Because remember when I was here, remember my example. They chased me out of town. I was humbled. I cried with tears, many trials. However, look at verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. In spite of all that, in spite of ministry being humbling, in in spite of the tears and the pain that comes with ministry and the plots of evil people to kill me and put me in jail, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I gave it to you all. I did not hold back the truth from you. I did it in public and I did it in private. We, went, we did it in the public square and we did it in your homes. And what is profitable? Like what would Paul tell them that would be profitable? Like is he giving them sound like life advice? Is he giving them some coaching and life coaching and life skills and life hacks and how to be happy, healthy, and wise? I mean, what's he, what's he doing here? What is profitable for Paul? Well, let's, use, let's see how else he uses that word profitable. He tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What was profitable for Paul to give these believers, these Ephesians? It was the word of God. It was the teaching that had the foundation that had been built upon the apostles. It was the word that Paul had from the Lord Jesus himself. It was through inspiration of scripture that he knew what those people needed. God's word. All scripture is profitable for teaching That's what to know for reproof. That's what to get right 
for correction, how to make it right, and train in righteousness, how to become holy and sanctified in your faith, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is why Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'm sure this is also something else that Paul gives to these elders and what he means by saying profitable, preach the word. Any pastor who will not preach the word needs to resign. We're not called to entertain, we're called to proclaim truth. And what does giving something profitable to them do. Look at verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. I did not shy away from giving you everything that was profitable. And so now, what are you going to do with it? So what did I do, Ephesian elders? I commanded Jews and Greeks alike to repent of their sins and turn to God and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's many pastors today that won't even say the word repent. And I know that because some of you have left churches recently who have told me that specifically. that You've never even heard of that word in your previous church. Why is that? Because it gets a little uncomfortable when you have to confront people with something they ought to do. But we're not here to please man. We're here to please God. So elders, ministry will be tough. But remember my example. Remember in light of all that, all the attacks, all the crying, all the heartache, I still did not hold back. And so what he's saying to them is, you don't either. I'm leaving you. But you have to keep it going here. You have to keep it going here. You have been called by God to shepherd his people in Ephesus. Yes. And he says that in verse 22. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me and every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Ah, now we know why Paul is giving these final addresses. First to Troas and now to the Ephesians. He knows his time is coming. Why? The Holy Spirit is telling him. Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. You're not going to know what's going to happen to you there. But on the way... In every city, you will face threats of imprisonment. You will face afflictions. It never gets easier for Paul, does it? And then when you take that in light of other statements he makes, for to me, 
to live is Christ. And to die is gain. In spite of all that Paul went through, he still saw the purpose of living and ministering, being Jesus. It's worth it. He's worth it. I have all these things that await me. The Spirit tells me that they're coming. I'm probably not going to see you again. Like verse 24. But, and you might wonder, how does Paul handle something like that? Like, how does he, like, knowing all these things, how does he handle it day by day? Like, how does he cope? How does he wake up in the morning? Is today going to be the day? But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How does Paul do it? He has the goal in mind. Paul counts his life, Paul counts the mission that Christ has given him more valuable than his own life. How can I go there knowing what will happen to me? Paul has a soldier's mindset by going into battle. A soldier enters battle. He goes to war. He kisses his family goodbye, not knowing if he will return. He goes to fight for his country because the mission is more important than his life. Protecting his country and his home freedom is more important than his life. And praise God for the men and women who've given their all. But Paul has this same mindset. I don't count my life as valuable or precious to me. If I lose it, I lose it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he tells the Philippians. The only thing I want is to finish my course. I want to finish the ministry that the Lord Jesus gave me. The ministry that he gave me is to testify, to be a witness of the gospel of the grace of God. King Jesus has given me marching orders, and I will not quit until it is done or until he calls me home. To do anything different is to give and cave to my flesh and to my fears. But that statement he makes there, do not account my life of any value, nor as precious. If you will remember several years ago, I wrote a devotional book that we all read together called Glory Upon Glory. If you, didn't, if you don't have a copy of that, please, there's free copies in the, in the Welcome Center book rack. Please get one today. What we talked about there is that this world, that the word glory denotes a heaviness or a weightiness. We learn that we can give glory to anything. We give weightiness to things that matter to us. That's what the word glory means. And God is alone glorious, the one who deserves glory. God is holy and he is heavier and weightier than anything in creation. 
But when we worship other things apart from God, when we idolize other things, we can give other things misdirected glory. And we have things, and we give things the weight, and whatever is heavier, you're going to be drawn to. You will always gravitate to whatever is heaviest or most glorious in your life. So what is weighty in yours? See, because for Paul, finishing the mission, obeying the Lord Jesus, was more glorious, more weightier, more valuable than the things he had to endure along the way. See, other people quit. Other people run. Other people fear. They hide. I can't do it. Why? Because they value their own life more than the mission of God. How could Paul do this? Because Paul saw the Lord Jesus and all his glory as weightier than anything he could possess. And you will always gravitate to whatever is most glorious in your life. That is a common principle. If you want to know what your idols are, take it away. You'll feel the absence of the weight they have left behind. This is the reason that you keep and I keep falling for the same temptation again and again and again. Your sin in that moment is more weightier, more glorious to you than God. You have given more glory to your sin than obeying the command of God to flee and to run. And I think it was John Owen said, until we... Glory more in God. We will never forsake our sin. We will keep doing the same things again and again. Like the moon is stuck in the earth's orbit. We'll keep in that same area with our sin. But the glory of God, the gospel, frees us from our trap of sin and our obedience to ourselves. And when we see the gospel as freedom, as glorious, as Christ-centered, as God is all worthy of all that I could ever do or give to him, then we will say no. Why? Because my God matters to me than that selfish pursuit of temptation. Well, in the same way, this is how Paul could keep going, even though the Holy Spirit told him what was going. Because Paul says, I do not value my life or that precious to me compared to what the Lord told me to do. That's why Paul was going. Some people may call him crazy, and I'm sure he was to a degree. But it's just that he had a proper perspective of glory. C.S. Lewis has a great book called The Weight of Glory. I would encourage you to read. He explores these different things of the weightiness of glory as well. What are you giving more glory to? This is what Paul, this is what mattered to Paul. Yeah. May we glory more in our love of God and our obedience to God than any aspirations we can ever accumulate may we have the same love that Christ has for his church as Paul had for the mission of God 
We see the pastoral heart of Paul. And obviously, we're not all pastors in this room, but we can all share in that same love that God has for his people, for one another. This is why God has commanded us to be a community and to be centered on the word and discipling one another and and so on and so on. We all have a job to do. But really, what it gets down to it is what makes Paul go? Well, he's filled with the Spirit, of course. But that filling of the Spirit produced in Paul a proper glory to, saw, to see things in perspective. As Paul could say, uh, I've, I've had much and I've had little. I've been cold, I've been hot, I've been hungry, I've been well-fed. I found myself in whatever position, this is the PDV version, Pastor Dan version. I found myself in whatever state to be content. I'm happy where God has me. Why? Because he's glory in God. Oh, I've got another hour's worth more than notes, but we'll stop there and we'll pick it up next week as Paul then shifts the focus to the elders to say, now you do likewise. You do this. You elders must have a proper perspective of ministry. You must have a proper perspective of glory. You must have a proper perspective of the mission being more valuable than your life. If not, this isn't for you. Wow. These are heavy, heavy things. But this is what the Lord used to bear much fruit in Ephesus for his glory. May he do the same here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there is so much in this chapter 20. Thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Luke to record these words for us. There's so much to unwrap, so much to unpackage here. And Lord, we'll save some more for next week. But Lord, from having a love of your people, a love of the gathering, a pursuit of truth, a proper perspective of glory. Lord, there's all things that we're all glorying in this week. We're giving more weightiness to things and people than God. Lord, know that the only proper way to live, the only fruitful and healthy way to live is when we glory more in God than all of our other relationships and activities fall into place. Let this be true in our relationships. Let this, let this be true in our workplaces. Let this be true in our church. I pray that, that there is a great confession of sin in this moment. Of people in this room and who know that they have sinned against you. They've given great weightiness. They've been attracted to that weight of glory. They've given to something else. And it's heavier to them than you. May they repent. May they forsake that. Through your Holy Spirit, love you. See your glory for all that it is. And Lord, empower them to live sanctified and holy lives. 
Oh God, help us today. Your people love you. Your people need you. We are nothing without you. Use this word to shape us into who we ought to be. Father, help me to be the pastor that I ought to be. Lord, I failed you greatly. Have much, much to grow and learn. Lord, help us together as a body to be healthy, to love in your word, to love the truth, to obey it, to serve you, to share Christ with people. Oh, Lord, do your work through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a closing hymn together this morning. If I could help you in any way, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you do not know Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to to stay for a few minutes afterwards. I'd love to share the gospel with you more personally and one-on-one. I'll be in the Welcome Center area. That's where I'm going to be from now on. So if anyone wants to talk with me, that's where I'll be so we don't clog up the hallway. And so God bless you. I love you. And have a great week. Thank you.